So we find ourselves in chapter 4 today, in verse 26 and 27, looking at the sin of anger, or bitterness, or resentment, or frustration, and, and how this, these things, these types of angers, can turn into even murder, road rage, outbursts of wrath, divisions. And uh, we looked again at chapters 1 through 3, which grounded us that we are in Christ. He is in us. That salvation is a gift of God. It's not of ourselves past. It's not of ourselves present. It's not going to be of ourselves in the future. It's not of our works past. It's not of our works present. It's not of our works future. It is a gift of God. And the first convert, I, I love it. The thief on the cross, his hands are tied, his feet are tied. He had no more time to live. He's going to be in heaven with you and I in a robe of righteousness like you and I, seated on the throne of Christ like you and I. And he will be the testimony, not of works, not of myself. It was a gift of God. And when we can go into the world and share that gospel, Jesus said, here is the one work. What, must we, what are the works that God expects of us? They were frustrated. Jesus said, let me simplify it. <laughs> There's only one work to believe on him whom God has sent. That's it. Whoever believes on him shall have everlasting life. Whoever believes, trusts, leans on, <laughs> receives, whatever word you want to use, Jesus, you have eternal life. Well, well, what do I need to do? No, no, no. The Bible makes it clear in 1 John that having Jesus is having eternal life. In other words, eternal life is having Christ. And if you receive Christ, you have eternal life because he is eternal and you are in him and he is in you in a perfect unity. That's why 1 John 5.13 says, hang on to Jesus. Because if you have the Son, you have everlasting life. Now, if somebody doesn't have the Son, then they're condemned already. Because he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. God doesn't have to condemn them. They're condemning themselves because they don't have eternal life in them. Well, how do I get eternal life in me? You have Jesus in you. Eternal life isn't something we're trying to get. It's something we have by having Jesus in our lives. And so he spent three chapters <laughs> pounding this home. And I sort of hate leaving the first three chapters. Because now the chapters four through six is, okay, now that you are an eternal being, right? We'll never die, even though our body will fall down dead like the grass or like a flower. Us, the real us, our spirit goes on living forever and ever and ever. So we actually never die. We just have a change of address, you know, out of the old rickety farmhouse falling apart into a heavenly body. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but we don't die. 
So now that we have this eternal life, and I can't stand it. I love Jesus so much. He's so kind to me. He's so patient to me. I can fall down seven times or seven million times, and he will pick me up. I can be the prodigal son once, or I could be the prodigal son a thousand times. And every single time, it'll be the same love of the Father towards me. He is just so wonderful. I want, I want to love him like he's loving me. But it, it sort of depends on who he is, right? I mean, if my wife loves roses, which she does, but I keep buying her a dozen of carnations, and she's like, thank you. And I'm like, man, she's not very appreciative. Come to find out she has allergies with carnations. So I'm really not blessing her at all. I'm sort of cursing her every time I bring her because I don't know her, you see. But if I come to know her, I know the type of flower, the color of flower. I, you see what I'm saying? I'm giving her that which blesses her. In the same way, when you come to know the nature of Jesus, you know what he likes, you know what he doesn't like. You know what he loves, and you know what he hates. And so... I want to come to know Jesus to do the things that bless him. Why? Out of pure little love of my heart. I'm not trying to obey Christ or serve Christ or submit to Christ or to love on Christ so I secure my salvation. So I prove that I'm worthy. That it's a completed work now that I'm, you know, Christ saved me with the understanding I would do my part. And once I do my part, then it's a done deal. But he doesn't sign until I start doing my part. And I never stop doing my part. And I keep doing my part perfectly until the day I die. And, and, uh, and that's the way it is with people. It's like, are you saved? Well, I'm doing my part, but not so good lately, so I'm not so sure. I was sure last week when I was doing good. And then I sort of thought about it. I wasn't doing as great as I thought, actually. But... <laughs> But man, this week, I promised God, this week, God, forgive me. And Lord, please let me, if I die tonight, let me go to heaven. Because this week, I will, man, you're going to see a new me. And, and what happens in our human nature? We just keep raising the bar, raising the bar, raising the bar. So even if we make one bar, we raise the bar. And we, we never attain to what we think we need to attain to. So we're worthy of heaven. We're never worthy of heaven. If you live 10,000 years of doing a perfect life without sin, you're still not worthy of heaven because your past sins made you permanently unworthy. 100% of us in heaven are going to be there as a gift of God, not of our righteousness, which we have done, but of his kindness, of his mercies, we're saved. This is just so essential because now that we're saying, I want to walk in righteousness, I don't want to walk in unrighteousness, it doesn't improve on my salvation. <laughs> it doesn't guarantee my salvation. The nature of Jesus guarantees my salvation. He's faithful even when I'm not because he can't deny his very nature. And the gifts, which salvation is a gift, and the callings, salvation as a calling, of God are irrevocable. 
So he gives us the nation of Israel. And he says, look at these guys. <laughs> I chose them and, and they have been the most stiff-necked, rebellious, unbelieving people. Throughout their history, it's crash and burn. But what is the consistent theme? God never lets them go. God said to Abraham, you and your descendants are my children forever. <laughs> right? But they've rejected the Messiah. Surely that cuts them off forever, doesn't it? No. God already told us in advance, he's going to take the history of mankind and spend the last seven years bringing Israel back to himself as a nation. So the time we get to the middle of the tribulation period, the Jews' eyes throughout the world are opened. And it says in the Minor Prophets that they will then look on him whom they pierced and they will grieve and mourn that they've rejected their Messiah for 2,000 years. And what does God do? He receives them to himself. The end of the tribulation, he makes Israel the nation that he always wanted them to be. And for the first time, all the land he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all finally possess their land in that millennial reign for a thousand years. And guess who's the king? The way it was originally set up to be the king. God, Jesus himself. And I love this. He's on the throne of David, a man. That's a whole nother story, but... It's powerful to, to let us know that he is ruling and reigning for that thousand years. Israel, the promise. And then it tells us that he's the nation of Israel. All Israel will be saved, not every Jew, but all of those nationally or Jews will see it in heaven forever and ever and ever. But what do we see in the history of man? He never stops being faithful to Israel. So how much more us? Remember Jesus said, look at John the Baptist. Going back to the beginning of time, to Adam and Eve, no one has ever been greater than John the Baptist. But yet, after the cross, Jesus says, in the kingdom, the least after the cross is greater than he. Isn't that crazy? So it, I, I just can't stand up and shout and make the point enough. All your obedience has to be out of love or it means nothing. It profits you nothing. But when the love of Christ and just letting it flow, letting his mercy, his patience, his kindness, his love, his, his kisses, his stroking of our hair, his his goodness to us just over and over again, not because we're worthy, not because we're beautiful, not because we're sinless, but because that's just his nature. He just overwhelms us. He loves us. His banner over me is love. He stands over us singing. That eventually as we're pickled in this love of Christ, this faithfulness of Christ, the mercies of Christ, we finally just scream and say, no more, I'm loving you more than you love me. Ah, oh, well, good luck with that one, Brian. Oh, watch out, Jesus. I'm going to hug you more 
I'm going to kiss you more. I'm going to do things that, that bless you more than the things you do to bless me. See, that, that's the way the marriage is supposed to work, isn't it? I'm going to outserve you. No, I'm going to outserve you. Now, when we come to that place, that is Christianity. And now we begin to walk holy as God is holy. And we're not saying, now you see I'm a Christian, I told you. Now, God, you see, I told you you picked a good one in me. Yeah, look at me, man. I am just, woohoo! I'm, I am really, no. It, it means nothing other than just, I'm holy as God is holy. Only thing that means is I'm loving Jesus. And, and it's blessing his heart. And I can sense the spirit in me is joyful as well. And my spirit is joyful. And then what did we discover? Passion, spiritual desire, power, love. The gifts of the Spirit begin to flow. Prophecy and gifts of faith and tongues and interpretation of tongues and, and the gift of miracles and the gift of faith. All these things start flowing in our life, not because we're worthy, not because we are holy. Not, it's just simply we're walking in the life of the Spirit out of love for God. Not to get, I don't want to get unaccepted. I don't want to lose my salvation. I don't want to get blackballed. I don't want to, you know, have that surprise day where I stand before God and he goes, I know you went to church and I know you read your Bible and, you know, you had a pretty good decade between, you know, 83 and 93, but, you know, outside of that, I, I'm I'm sorry. You, you did a good job. Your effort was commendable, but not good enough to go to heaven. It's, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. It's not of your works. The thief on the cross, it wasn't of his past works. It wasn't of his present works. It wasn't of his future works because he could have none. Right? He was saved by a gift of God. Clearly, right? No different to all of us. God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Even the Pharisees said of Jesus many, many times, well, the one thing I can say about you is there's no partiality in you. What you would do for the poorest of the poor, you do for the rich of the rich, and vice versa. What you would do for the Jew is what you would do for the Gentile, the Jesus. So since there is zero impartiality in you, how is the thief on the cross saved? That's how you are saved. In an instant, in a moment, did the thief on the cross know Jesus was the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, born of a virgin? I don't think he knew any of that. He just heard Jesus being kind. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus. Lord, when you come into your kingdom, he did believe he would resurrect. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. Is that the sorriest sinner's prayer you've ever heard? Now, let's look in the Bible at a really good sinner's prayer. You, you know what? There is none. <laughs> because we're not saved by praying either. We're just saved at the moment 
You believe in your heart. That's why I can't tell you maybe a dozen times I've been by the bed of somebody in a coma or people with tubes in their bodies and just share the simple, simple gospel and say, believe that in your heart and you are saved. Some cases they could squeeze my hand or blink their eye a little bit. Sometimes nothing. But all I know is that before that spirit leaves the body, if they can trust Christ, receive Christ, believe on Christ, whatever word you want to use, they are going to be in the same heaven as you and I. Even though they never had to suffer through one of my sermons, they didn't have to go to church every Sunday, they're still going to be in heaven. But you guys are going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven because you're having to suffer through all my sermons. Anyway. <laughs> so that's... Uh, Extra credit for you guys. We're actually going to go back to the sermon here now. Just really on my heart this week. So it's interesting that we, we see Paul in, in these three things that he says we need to do to, to, to not walk in the power of the flesh, to not be overcome by sin, but to be able to, to, to walk practically daily in obedience it's by the power of the Holy Spirit always, but we put off or take off the old man. Be renewed in your mind or the spirit of your mind. Put on the new man. And, and so he's going to look at some specific areas that were major issues for this church and for many of us. The first one we looked at last week in, in verse 25, honesty or on the issue of lying. And then this week on the issue of anger. But the thing that we'll see in each of these, he gives a negative, then he gives a positive, and then he gives, thirdly, the reason why. All of these is going to be overcome by the power of God's Spirit, not the power of your determination or your efforts of your flesh, but and also by the work of his grace. By the power of his Spirit, by the work of his grace. By the power of his Spirit, by the work of his grace. Let him who glories glory in the Lord. I love this quote. God's commandments are also his enablements. It is not going to be in the strength of your flesh that this is going to be accomplished, but by the power of the Spirit, all things are possible. So last week we saw the negative of lying was don't lie to one another. The positive, speak truth to one another. And then why? Because we're members of one another. Now, verse 26 and 27. Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Surprisingly here, he doesn't say don't be angry. He says do be angry. <laughs> so the actual emotion of anger in and of itself is not sin. So he is saying there's a lot of anger, and I don't want to stop it. I want that anger flowing. So I don't want to tell you not to be angry. I just want to tell you don't be angry in the wrong way. So, you know, genuinely, we see anger as a negative, a hurtful thing. For example, just a couple of ways. There's many we could look at. But, you know, one is like the lashing out at someone. We should take all our complaints to the Lord and not to man. But I, that's just me. When I get angry, I just, whoever's there, if it's myself, I lash at myself. <laughs> if 
If Cheryl's there, I lash out at her. Sorry, honey. The older I get, the more grumpy I am. I, I seem to have perfected lashing out on people. But <laughs> Galatians 5 tells us that that outburst of wrath is a sin, a work of the flesh. James 1.19 makes it clear that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So we need to really calculate, be slow to wrath, be, be observing your anger, and to make sure it is the righteous type of anger, not an unrighteous anger. Typically, we're angry on some kind of human selfishness level. Someone stepped in front of me in line. Hey, buddy, get back behind me. Or we feel as someone has taken advantage of us. Hey, I like Gal Irwin. He said, you never really know if you're a servant till somebody treats you like one. You know, you see some assistant pastor and he's, some kid threw up and he's, you know, mopping a floor and, and a guy says, hey, uh, you missed a spot over there. And the assistant pastor's like, yeah, you don't know who I am. I'm not the janitor around here, you know. But, or if he just says, oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. You don't really know if you're a servant until somebody treats you like one. But yet, human selfishness, pride. Or if someone doesn't treat us as important as we think we are. <laughs> That's the one often. Galatians 6.3 6, says, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's really nothing, he deceives himself. Jesus, the mind of Christ that we're all to have, in Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. There's the key. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So the mind of Christ, when he lived on this earth, even though he was the King of kings and the Lord of lords, all power, all authority, every angel was under his power and control. All of creation was under his power and control. He walked around as a humble servant. And whether it was a woman at a well or whether it was a leper, he saw everybody as more important than himself. He saw everybody's interest as more important than his own interest. But there are times when it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be angry at injustice. Matter of fact, it's sin. If you're not angry at injustice, you should be angry at abuse. You should be angry when people are being led astray into heresy. Our brother Brian, I don't see he's present here today, but his ministry that he works hours and hours, all hours of the week, is rescuing girls from sex slavery. And he has a ministry. They take him out to a house and get him safe and disciple them. He tells me these stories, and I'm just, I want to kill somebody. <laughs> His focus is on these girls and ministering to them and, and helping them get in a safe place and, 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 you know, to see their lives come back to some kind of healing and, and normalcy. Jesus gave us some examples of being angry. He was angry against hypocrisy. He was angry against legalism. He was angry against dishonesty 
about somebody's spiritual inner man, their true welfare, people trying to appear righteous when they know for a fact they're not being righteous. We see the story where the man comes down from the roof, his buddies are lowering him, and Jesus sees the real need this guy has greater than his crippledness was your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees start flipping out. And Jesus looked at these Pharisees in anger. It says in Mark 3, 5, he looked around at them in anger and at the hardness of their hearts. And he said, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Well, really, it's spiritual is were difficult, but when you see it in the physical realm, you say, well, if this miracle that he spoke in the physical realm is true, then the, the miracle he spoke in the spiritual realm also must be true. One we can verify with our own eyes, the other one we can't. So Jesus says, just let you know, neither one of them are hard for God. Nothing's hard for God. Jesus cleansed the temple. He was angry at their hypocrisy and their thieving and the oppressing of the poor. You guys know this story. Turn over the money changing tables. John says that he actually made a whip. And he said, my father's house is to be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves, not a place for merchandise. And then um, Jesus just confronted these Pharisees with their legalistic system that was burdening the people. He said, you guys bind heavy burdens and hard to bear. Lay them on men's soldiers, but they themselves will not move them one of their fingers. They don't care that people are being smashed by legalism. They were fine with that, and they would then appear as if they're obeying it perfectly when they weren't. Vipers, serpents. But I want you to take a note there. Jesus comes down heavy on these Pharisees in, in Matthew 23, doesn't he? Vipers, hypocrites, whitewashed tombs with dead men's bones. It sounds like Jesus is being sinful, almost. He's really pounding on these guys. But look in chapter 23, verse 37 and 39. What does he do after he pounds on these guys about the hypocrisy and the fact that they're burdening people with all their legalism? He goes and he prays, just begins to cry and weep over the lostness of these Pharisees, Sadducees, the nation of Israel, all the Jews. And he just says, oh, how many times I want to gather together as a hen gathers her chicks to her wings. He loved on them. We see that the Jew was, that Jesus was angry, but not sinning in his anger. His anger did not turn into condemnation, but concern. It did not turn on lashing out at man, but it turned into a very sincere, heartfelt time of prayer with weeping. John 3, 17, God, Jesus did not, or God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world. Neither did he come to condemn these Pharisees, but to save it. So he goes on in this verse of Ephesians to say, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. So he, he is saying that there is a timer on your anger. And it's not something that can go on into the next day. That whatever your anger is, before you end up having to go to bed, whatever time that is, it should, you should not be 
stewing on it all night and you should not be waking up in the morning with it. I, I like that quote that says, let the day of your anger be on the same day as your reconciliation. Or another one is just keep short accounts. Close the account by the end of the day. You know, just for you, you in marriage or dating or in friendship, if you're having this problem, I'd like to give you a healthy plan of action. When you're having these times of anger, number one, just talk to each other and agree. Say, hey, sometimes you're going to have these arguments. We're not in one right now, but when that day comes, this is how we're going to deal with it. We're not going to be able to, you just say to each other, we're not going to be able to resolve it tonight. We've tried. We're both hurt. We're both angry. Let's just pray blessings on each other and agree to continue the discussion at a better time when we're not exhausted, when we're not injured, when we've had time to think about it and pray about it. Also, just to agree with each other, if we can't resolve this on the next discussion, we're going to get some outside advice or counsel from whoever the two of us agree upon as soon as possible. Why? Because look at the next part of that verse in Ephesians. The devil is wanting to see you get angry in the wrong way. That's one of his number one ways to damage you and others. I, I like the way the NIV says it. It doesn't just say don't give place to the devil. It says don't give the devil a foothold. I like that. Trying to shut the door and the devil puts his foot in the door. You can't shut it. No, I'm, I, I like being right here. This is a good strategic position for me. And boy, just go to bed with all that anger. Yes, you know. I'd like to see this go on for a long time until your heart is hard and then I can really start pounding on you. Let's not forget, the devil is slick. He's a snake. The devil is powerful like a lion and he's walking around observing believers. Do you think he's messing with unbelievers? No, he's spending all his time on believers. Do you think Satan has sent a few demons to us this morning to mess with us? Absolutely. Before we even probably got out of bed, he started messing with us on the way here. And even now, some of you guys, he's tried to harden your hearts through this week. So right now, your, your number one thought is just, I want to get out of here. I, I don't, I don't, and, and you're, and the message is like water going off a duck's back. Satan's looking for those opportunities. I, I like that when he was tempting Jesus. He, he said he departed for a more opportune time in Luke 4.13. Why? Because through anger, he can bring division. That's where he is headed. In Proverbs 6.16, it says, there are six things God hates. Well, let me tell you about the seventh one. That one is an abomination to bring division. How do we not bring division? First uh, Peter 4.8. And above all these things, have a fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Satan is working 
on tearing us down and using our pride and our anger to do it. We need to switch it around. And things that Satan wanted to destroy us and bring division with actually builds us up and makes us stronger because we've been through a difficult time together and we've pressed in to love each other and to forgive each other. So I I just want to talk as we close here on how anger can turn into bitterness and bring absolute, complete destruction. You guys remember Esau, right? You know, he dealt with his anger and bitterness and he did a good job with it. He really seemed to genuinely forgave Jacob and uh, the the two brothers had, had a reconciliation. They separated, they were two separate nations. But what happened with the people of Esau called the Edomites, who lived in the rock city in the country of Jordan today, called Petra. They just let that anger fester decade after decade. Hundreds of years went by, and they all felt like yesterday is when Jacob deceived Esau. We have a book in the Old Testament called Obadiah, just a little paragraph, but it's when Israel was, was losing against the Assyrians and later against the Babylonians. And, and they were fleeing for their lives. And the Edomites showed up and stopped them, letting the Amalekites catch up and then rape and torture them and murder them. And they, it, it just rejoiced the Edomites' hearts that they could just stop Israel in the midst of fleeing and seeing them get what was coming to them. And God says, because you've done this, I'm wiping you out permanently as an entire nation. So in Hebrews 12, talking about this, in verse 14 and 15, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled, an entire nation. I'd like to talk about a guy by the name of Ahithophel. Now we know from 2 Samuel 23, verse 34, and 2 Samuel eleven three 3, that actually he is the grandfather of Bathsheba. But before the incident with Bathsheba happened, him and David were best buddies. David's closest friend was this guy Ahithophel. And the one thing they had in common the most was the worship of God. It tells us in Psalms 41.9, and it lets you know this relationship with David and Ahithophel is a picture of Jesus and Judas. So the same Psalms that are quoted about Judas are the ones also quoted about Ahithophel. And in Psalm 41.9, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his hill against me. In Psalm 55.12-14, for it was not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man, my equal, my companion, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together. We walked to the house of God in the throng. Well, you guys know the story. David, why 
Uriah was out fighting David's battle. David's looking at all the gals below his palace and sees him taking baths and sees this most excellent, beautiful lady Bathsheba and ends up having committing adultery with her while her husband's away on David's bidding, fighting his battle. But Ahithophel, it appears, didn't realize how tormented David was over that. David, for nine months, was his bones that felt like they were turning to water. He couldn't get off his bed from weeping. And he believed, like, I know God's merciful, but not over adultery, not over murder. God can forgive a lot of stuff, but I, I went way over the line. I'm doomed. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even want to insult God by asking him forgiveness after what I've done. Well, you guys know the story after that. Nathaniel came to David and, and David repented. And he said, you're also forgiven. And then, of course, the baby dies. It doesn't appear that Ahithophel understood the depths of God's discipline over David's life. All he saw was David, right after, as soon as he could, he marries Bathsheba, starts having kids with Bathsheba, and, and Uriah is, is forgotten about. And he holds this anger in and it turns into bitterness. And he's waiting for an opportunity. I don't think David knows how deeply bitter Ahithophel is towards him. It seems like Ahithophel put on a mask. But then the way comes when Absalom is going to try a coup and overthrow David. And you guys remember that story? Ahithophel, the greatest counselor of David, sides with Absalom and starts giving him this most excellent advice. Listen to the depths of Ahithophel's bitterness as he counsels Absalom. In 2 Samuel 16, verse 20, 23, Absalom said to Ahithophel, give counsel as to what we should do. The Bible says that Ahithophel's counsel was as if it were words right from God's mouth in another passage. So he says, here's what you need to do, Absalom. First of all, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have abhorred your father. And then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. Here's how you need to do it in verse 22. Pitch a tent for, on, on the top of the house so the whole nation can see it. And so Absalom went up to his father's concubines on the side of all of Israel do you, you see the depths? David in secret committed adultery with my granddaughter Bathsheba. But I want his son to go into all his stepmoms on the roof in front of everybody, seeing him having sex with them all to just disgrace. I mean, he, he's like, I can't get David back enough. I, I can't take this adultery and, and shove it down his throat deep enough. Do you think this satisfied Absalom's bitterness towards David? Humiliating David in this way? Then the next thing he says to Absalom in chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, he says, Now, I'm an old man, but it doesn't matter. I've got enough hate for the whole country. Let me get 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue, notice, David. He doesn't say King David. 
I will come upon him while he's weary and weak, and I will make him afraid. And all the people who are with me will flee, but I will strike only the king. I'm gonna, I'm not a warrior, I'm just an old man, but give me 12,000 men, and I will chase David until he is afraid. And while he's running for his life and everybody's scattered and he's afraid, David scurrying on the ground is going to see me and my face and my sword. And I'm going to be the one to strike that guy dead. But God put his finger on the scale and made Absalom reject Ahithophel's advice. And Hushi, who was very loyal to David, was pretending to be with Absalom and gave him opposite advice. In 2 Samuel 17, 14, so the advice of Hushi, the archite, is better than the advice of Ahithophel. And the Lord had purpose to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel. And in verse 17, verse 23, when Ahithophel realized he couldn't spew his bitterness out, very calmly, very much in control, in 2 Samuel 17, 23, now when Ahithophel saw that his vice was not followed, he saddled his donkey, arose, went home to his house, to the city, put his household in order, and hanged himself and died. Do you see where bitterness takes you? You guys know that old statement, right? Bitterness is where you pour poison for somebody else that you're bitter at and then drink it yourself. There you go. So we see the negative is don't be angry in a sinful way. The positive is be angry, but in a righteous way, but then keep your eye on it to make sure it doesn't devolve into unrighteous anger. The third is the reason why. Because Satan, through your anger, through your bitterness, through your resentment, through your wrath, is trying to get a foothold across the board, in your marriage, in your family, in the church, in your friendships. He's trying to, you and your self-righteous anger, destroy your life like he did Ahithophel. Final quote, and we're over. Any fool can get or be angry. But to be angry for the right reason, in the right time, and in the right place, and in the right way, can be very hard. True? Well, Lord, as we come today, we hear your exhortation on all our response to the gospel and not trying to be approved by you, not trying to guarantee our eternal life, not trying to add to it and perfect it or complete it by our righteousness or our good works. And Lord, it's very practical. Last week on the issue of lying, it's very practical. Now on the issue of anger, very practical. And we, we see it's not never be angry. It's, we need to be angry a lot at unrighteousness, at abuse, at hypocrisy, at legalism, at people being oppressed. We need to rise up in anger and do action. Whether that's defending somebody being mugged or or stepping in and telling people that Christ loves them and to stop their 
self-destructive behavior. But Lord, we, we, we hear today also the, the, the warning that we can often think our anger is righteous when it's not. It's actually sinful anger. Maybe self-righteous, but not righteous. And we need to be slow to anger because the wrath of man never produces the righteousness of God. And even above that, to not give the Satan a foothold into our home, into our marriage, into our lives, and then try to destroy us through it. Thank you for washing us in the water of the word. Strengthen us. Bring us back Wednesday night with ready hearts and ready minds. Those who have an appetite, those who can make it. Lord, just meet us again powerfully in a time of seeking you. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said...